Back to the Thinking God podcast. Uh, we've been gone for the summer and hope to get back on the semi-regular schedule in this fall and winter. I've got a few guests lined up. Yeah, promises, promises. Uh, it should all work out. But today, we have a good one. I'm talking to Pat Terry. And Pat Terry is a singer-songwriter who pioneered contemporary Christian music and has penned a hit parade of songs for country artists and other folks uh, between 1974 and 1980. Pat wrote and recorded seven albums with the Pat Terry Group. And he offered a blend of sort of inspirational country pop and blues and that, that, that style. And his single, Home Where I Belong and I Can't Wait, sort of became standards during that period. Uh, Pat also recorded a series of really well-received albums that were produced by the late Mark Hurd. And man, those are really fine albums. They're hard to find. And uh, if you can find them, you ought to get your hands on them. We talk about that some. And after those three critically acclaimed solo albums uh, in 1985, he left the road and became pretty much just a songwriter. And then he wrote the tradition of country music, and he recorded has had, had some of his songs recorded by artists such as Steve Earle, Ricky Skaggs, Amy Lou Harris. And um, he lives in Smyrna, Georgia still, where he's lived his whole life. And he also spent a lot of time in Nashville, and it was during his trips to Nashville in the 80s that he co-authored um, a uh, hit with Travis Tritt and Help Me Hold On. And more than 30 of his songs have been recorded by other artists, including Confederate Railroad, uh, he wrote Long Gone, Tanya Tucker, It's a Little Too Late, and Sammy Kershaw's National Working Woman's Holiday. And he, he's just, a, Pat's a really good guy and a fine human being. And he gets to tell a story about an interesting uh, salute to Jackson Brown. Um, what's your earliest memories of music? Um, my earliest memories of music, um, probably a couple of things really stand out. I, my mom was a big music fan. She, you know, unlike a lot of parents of, of almost any era, uh, she, she wasn't scared of pop music and rock music. I mean, she, she kind of liked it all. So we had a lot of music in our house. And I, I remember very clearly, uh, her playing playing records and one in particular that that I really remember was a, a, a pop record called um, Deep Purple, which was a cover by Nino Tempo and April Stevens of a it was an old it was an older popular song that they they redid and made it more pop and uh, but we my mom played that all the time and I. I still, I still have that on my um, iTunes list because I enjoy going wow. back and hearing that, you know. So, um, so that's uh, you know that's that's certainly an early memory. And then one that was really um, kind of changed things for me, I guess, um, was um, my dad owned a little store, which was a we call it the fruit stand because it was a. It was a little vegetable market, and um, uh, but it had a uh, in the front of it there was a vegetable market, and in the back there was a little cafe. And in the cafe, my dad had a um, uh, jukebox installed, and uh, it, it really that was kind of where I got my biggest education um, about you know what was being written and and sung back in the late 50s and early 60s and um 
Uh, you know, I still remember uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, great balls of fire being on there, and and um, Johnny Cash, several Johnny Cash things, and and uh, Johnny Horton songs, and uh, it was just the first time I think that I paid attention to actual songs and to lyrics, and um, uh, one in particular that pops out to me was a song that occasionally I. I play play this song in my concerts, a uh, song called uh, Wolverton Mountain by an artist named Claude King. And and um, it was, I guess it was the first song that I really became aware that songs were storytelling. Um, and uh, the story in that song really intrigued me for some reason. And, and um, so uh, I think that kind of laid the groundwork for me later on when I started um wanting to make my own music. Well, when did you start singing and playing guitar? Um, well, it, I, I like a lot of kids uh, in 1964. It's like uh, things dramatically changed when the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan. And uh, when, when that happened, I remember clearly laying in my bed that Sunday night after the show and thinking to myself, man, I have got to do this, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I really, I really wanted all of a sudden to play guitar and, and sing and be in a band. And so, um, I was about, um, uh, 12 or 13 years old around that time. And, um, uh, my aunt had a guitar that, up in her attic that she had given to my brother. And my brother kind of fixed it up where it was reasonably playable. But he didn't have that much interest in it, and so he ended up just giving it to me. And I started banging around on that thing and trying to make some music on it. And and um, um, it really wasn't long after that, me and some of my friends at school um, put together a band, and we that, that band in... A couple of different configurations stayed together all through high school. We played high school dances and things like that. And the name of the band was the Psychos, which <laughs> kind of kind of says it all, you know. What I mean? <laughs> well, um, first two questions there. First, do you remember what kind of guitar it was? Um, yeah, it was a. Um, uh, oh, geez, what's, what was the name of that? It was a Stella. Stella. Oh uh, yeah, was, you know, Robbie Robertson Stella played guitar. a Stella for a while. Yeah, they were um, they were kind of forties um, uh, era um, uh, pre war guitars, and uh, this one was probably um, made sometime during World War Two, um, and uh, it's I've still got it, and it's it's kind of barely playable, but uh, <laughs> but it's it's a cool old guitar. Well, what would have been on the Psychos playlist? <laughs> well, um, anything that was kind of top 40, I mean, we played. And, uh, you know, back in those days, um, there was uh, television shows like Shindig and Hullabaloo and things like that where, you know, whatever was really hot, you know, the, the artists of the day were appearing on there. And so, you know, if, if you heard it on those shows, then we were probably playing it. Um, I, I still remember uh, uh, 
kind of making a transition into the kind of music we were we were making around 1967 when the first Jimi Hendrix album came out. And um, uh, <laughs> I remember too doing a uh, playing in a battle of the bands, and that 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 Jimi Hendrix album had just come out. And we learned Purple Haze so that we could play it in this battle of the bands. And we were so pleased with ourselves because we thought, man, no one is going to be, no one else is going to have this. You know, this is a brand new record and we learned it immediately. And so we showed up and sure enough, the band that got up right in front of us played the best version of Purple Haze you could have (laughs) imagined. And and our our version was not so good, <laughs> and uh, we were so bummed, you know. But uh, that you know that was that was kind of what it was all about in those days. It's just finding things that you really connected with in some way, and uh, trying to take them out and show them off to your friends. And so uh, it was it was really a fun. Uh, a fun time. Music was was. I mean, that's really all I thought about, and all I did. And my parents were upset that I didn't spend as much time on my school work as I did on my guitar stuff. But uh, as years went on, I, it ended up a career for me, and so it's been okay. <laughs> well, now you were talking about earlier. You'd listen to the songs and lyrics. Who who were the songwriters you really liked at that time? Well, I can't say that I was that aware of, of you know, I, I, I had a tendency of associating songs with the people who sang them, gotcha. and, and it, it took me a while. Sometimes, you know, someone else, you know, has actually written the songs. But as the years went on, you know, the, the first the first people that I really became aware of as as writers was probably Lennon and McCartney and and um uh they were always my heroes and kind of remain so uh, their body of work just can't beat it. And um but uh through the years I've I've liked, you know, so many great writers. Uh, Jimmy Webb, I've I've loved what he's done and and um um uh, Bruce Springsteen is to me one of the great American writers and um is kind of um his is a very unique catalog I think that that um kind of wraps uh rock and roll around history and does it does a kind of a unique thing so I love Bruce and and um James Taylor, you know, if you're in a, if you play acoustic guitar and do singer songwriter stuff, it, you, you kind of James Taylor comes with the territory, I think. Um, but I think he 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 did an amazing thing in his formative years, and um, has continued. He, he's one of the few artists that um, I think just has continued to get better and better through the years, you know, and. Um, his his latest things are every bit as good, if not better than than his most well known stuff from earlier years. So so I love James Taylor and um 
I don't know. I, I could name millions of them, I guess. <laughs> was Dylan an influence at the time? I mean, were y'all listening to Dylan? I mean, it was hard to cover Dylan music, generally speaking. But. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, Dylan was... Um, uh, I listened I listened to a little of it, but I think it was... Uh, it was something about it that was a little... It was more serious than I could connect with when I was that young you know i mean i just you know i, I was a, a few years younger than than um, the people that i think were his most rabid fans back in those days uh but of course as the years have gone on i, I love love bob dylan and it i mean he's probably he probably has the most amazing catalog of any american songwriter it, the depth the depth of it and the size of it, you know, just the <laughs> sheer number of songs that he's written, just like holy moly, right? You know, and they and they really do, um, you know, you know, it's it's hard it's hard to put on any Bob Dylan album and not find at least several things that you just you just kind of wonder at, you know, it's like how in the world did he get that deep inside that subject, you know, and and do it with such simple language and you know it's it's um, you know he's he's great yeah i heard somebody say uh that it's almost like five artists are put together to make one guy named bob dylan when you listen over the years to the there's so many different yeah that's, that's a good way to put it yeah what's the first song you ever wrote uh, <laughs> the first song i ever wrote was a song called let's go to town it was uh, a song that um, I basically wrote to entertain my father, um, who was uh, kind of my biggest fan, and, and um, it was it was not a good song. It was a pretty bad song, actually. But um, you know, I, it, was, it was just something I put together, and I felt good about myself when I finished it. It was like, oh, you know, I wrote this, so. Um, but uh, it's it's very brief and not hardly worth commenting on. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were um, around uh, sort of back in the heyday of the contemporary Christian music scene, and how, how did your band come together? We um, um, well, we were known as the Pat Terry Group, and we we ended up calling it that because at, at that time I had already, um, uh, I had uh, become a Christian around 1970 and kind of early on, I had started playing some music around local churches and things like that. And, um, uh, I already kind of had a little momentum going as far as, you know, being out a lot playing and that kind of thing. And so um, when I got together with uh, Sonny Lollerstedt and Randy Bug, and we started playing together all the time, we because I did have a little momentum going on, and people, uh, at least locally, kind of knew what I was doing, we just said, well, let's just call it the Pat Terry Group, and you know, we'll, we'll try to keep that momentum going. And, and uh, so we called it Pat Terry Group, but... It Not as many churches called, would have booked yeah, Psycho yeah. either, I don't guess. No. <laughs> Psycho, Psychos would not not have worked for most churches. 
So, but we we got together. Uh, it was interesting. Sonny and Randy were uh, they were a part of a a, um, a group that played for a traveling evangelist named Richard Hogue, and um, I was invited to play at a Richard Hogue. Um, meeting that was here in town and I did and through that I met Sonny and Randy and I, uh, I didn't realize at the time that they were uh, they were from here in Atlanta um, and we got to know each other um, and really hit it off and, and um, had a lot of fun you know whenever together and play just kind of for fun and occasionally I would take them along to do some concert that I had booked and and uh, the more we played the, the, the more songs we ended up having that we could actually go out and play and we just kind of evolved into a group and uh, I think the, the 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 glue that kind of glued it all together was a um, a local Bible study that we played for um, uh, every week and um, it was before the days of worship music uh, so we didn't call it worship music, but we were kind of the song leaders uh, for this Bible study. So we would get up and lead pe- people in choruses and things like that. And uh, and we did that, um, you know, even after the group really got busy and we were making records and touring and all that kind of stuff, we played that Bible study. And we did for, you know, we were together um little over seven years, I guess, seven or eight years. And uh, there was never a Tuesday night when we were home that we weren't playing at that Bible study that entire time. So, so it kind of was, and it was a, it was kind of a home base for us and a, a, um, um, I guess a, a base of support of people that back home here that believed in what we were doing and cared about us and, prayed for us and you know helped us through any rough times that we had and that kind of stuff so it was um you know it was kind of good to be a part of a community back in those days what was it like traveling on that circuit that sort of early ccm circuit what were those days like being on the road well they weren't particularly glamorous (laughs) 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 which is kind of an understatement um it was you know, for us, it seemed exciting because we felt like that we were doing something that was fresh and and kind of new. Um, because we were we were primarily playing a lot of churches, and for churches, this kind of music was a new experience. You know, um, uh, there was a lot of trepidation. Uh, when you came into town to play for some of these places, it, they they would be excited to have you, but sometimes they would sit down and have a talk with you before you played and kind of explained how they felt about you know certain issues when it came to rock music and all this kind of stuff. And there was always this, a certain amount of tension that came with all that, and. Um, uh, you know, we we loved the church and and we wanted to be supportive of churches and um, so we never let that become an issue that would uh, separate us from from 
playing for those kind of places, but um, uh, but it was definitely there. And uh, you know, we got prayed for a few times, and in, in a not not particularly uplifting way. You know, um, you were never tempted to open uh, with Jimi Hendrix or anything, were you? I mean, <laughs> no, no, no. Not even no, in the back of your mind, you weren't thinking. You know, we could open. <laughs> You you didn't have to to upset people. I mean, you have, we we upset people with just the most gospelly Christian kind of songs you can imagine, just because they were up tempo, um, and because we had long hair and we dressed in jeans and just you know uh, we were actually very you know, fairly conservative middle-class guys, you know, from the South. And um, so we we weren't exactly, you know, hippies or anything, but we kind of looked like hippies. And for for churches, that was scary back in those days. Church hippies. Did, they, did anybody yeah. ever stop a concert or did it not come to that? Um, well, we had some, some bookings that were canceled. That's um you know, okay, and that was rare, but you know that happened a few times. And um, no, uh, nobody stopped any concerts. Now, after um, after the group disbanded, and I started doing my own solo stuff, it was more rock oriented. And even though I was going out and doing a lot of concerts just as a soloist, just me and an acoustic guitar. Some of the songs were, well, all the songs were a lot edgier than what that Terry group did. And people would come to my concerts expecting to hear the Pat Terry group. And they got me, you know, doing one or two Pat Terry group songs and the rest of the night doing my new material, which um, upset some people, you know, and, um, yeah, I had a, a few situations where, um, uh, you know, after the third or fourth song, people would get up and start walking out, and um, and I don't think it was because I was a terrible performer. Uh, I think it was because what they were hearing didn't jive with their idea of what. Christian music was supposed to sound like, and they 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 perceived it as being worldly and a bad influence on their their kids that they had brought to them. You know, I mean, I had a youth pastor once that brought a whole group of kids, and I got to about my third song, and he just stood up and led the entire group of kids out of the hall, and. Um, you know, if you if heard the material that I played today, you wouldn't think anything of it. You know, I mean, it's like Christian music has changed dramatically, and there's a lot of stuff that has come to pass as Christian music that you just wouldn't, you would compare it to what I was doing back then, and you'd think, well, geez, you know, there was nothing that should have been upsetting about this music, but... Uh, but it was because it was a very it's a very conservative atmosphere and 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 you know uh not sure if I'll know exactly how to say this but 
um, Christian music uh, audiences, and um, maybe more than the audiences, it, it's like the, the people who sponsor these concerts, uh, churches and pr- concert promoters and that kind of thing. Uh, some of some of them, um, it it wasn't about music. Uh, it was about uh, ministry, and I put that word in quotation marks because ministry meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But. Um, um, you know, they 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 often didn't uh, listen to music the same. They, they didn't listen to what they thought of as Christian music in the same way that they would listen to any other kind of music. And it it had to it had to express a certain kind of or version of Christianity. Um, and uh, and again, it was a, a pretty conservative kind of viewpoint. And biblically, um, it, it needed to reflect that that uh, you were a um, a Bible believer and a um, you know someone who took scripture at face value and. Um, it's like it was. It was just. It was a very rigid kind of idea about what would constitute Christian music. So, yeah, I think it's tough. important to inject here. I want people to know. I have a lot of people listening to this podcast that are either marginally people of faith or not at all that don't remember this era. Um, those same people you're talking about, many of them were leading album burnings and stuff of so-called right. secular music at the time. And the, right. even the what was considered contemporary Christian music, which really got perverted by the late 70s into another industry, um, it, those, those, the people you're talking about of that stripe, they wanted a Bible verse after every stanza to explain what you're, you know. Uh, right. And so when you, that, that was my next point I was going to get to. Those three album, solo albums you did, really marked a major shift in your approach to topics of faith and music. And um, I want to talk a little bit more about that. Do you remember what was going on in, in your mind in those days? Well, um, yeah. But, I mean, by the end of the Pat Terry group, uh, I had grown um, frustrated um, uh, and somewhat disillusioned with um, the Christian music scene. Uh, because I I felt that it wasn't it wasn't about artistry, um, but it, uh, as a matter of fact, um, one of the major record labels uh, they 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 used to market their records by saying that all our artists are saying the same thing. They just say it in a different way. And I really bristled at that because I thought, you know, there's no art in everybody saying the same thing. You know, I mean, it's like if you're, if you're trying to do something that has some kind of artistic value, then you are reflecting your, your thoughts 
and your opinions into what you're writing and what you're saying. And, um, you know, if you're required to carry some kind of banner uh, for a, a, a certain message in a certain way, then, then there's no need for artists. You know, you just you, you just need people who will write that song over and over and over and over, you know. So I was get a drum, get a, and get a really bad drum box to go with that. Well, you know <laughs> yeah, the thing right. that the thing that reminds me of Pat, just thinking about it, I hadn't really thought of it in these terms, but it's like going to a craft store and getting a paint by number kit. You might have fun putting it together, but nobody's going to remember that, and nobody's going to hang it in their living room. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it it, it, it did seem like that to me, you know. When did you meet Mark Hurd, and how, how did you guys influence each other? Because I think y'all had a good, a, a big influence on each other. Well, I, I certainly, I don't know how much influence I had on Mark, but I, no, he certainly had a lot of influence on me. Um, uh, Mark and I uh, met when he was at the University of Georgia, and uh, he had a band um, that um, he was in at that time. Now I'm trying to think what the name of the band was. It was, I think it was the title of her album that they put out. Um, maybe I'll think of it later. I'm sorry, but anyway, he had this he had this group, and um, uh, we were both booked to play at a Valentine's banquet at a church in Mapleton, Georgia. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and yeah, it was like you know, for Mark and me, it was love at first sight at a Valentine's Day. <laughs> we just we connected, you know. It's like uh, he got up and, and he was kind of the focus of the group because he wrote a number of the songs that they were recording, and and he was singing and playing them. And uh, I just thought I'd never heard anybody that was writing like that. Uh, in the circles that I was traveling in. I mean, it, it was just a whole different level of writing that was going on even in those early days. And uh, so we kind of got to know each other that night, and he invited me to, you know, come up to Athens and hang out with him, you know, anytime. So I used to go up to Athens and stay with him and his he and his roommates in this little apartment that they had up there. And during the day, while they were in class, I would stay there and write, you know, work on writing songs. And then when Mark would get in from class and we would write some things together and, and, um, he had a, a little, uh, recorder, a, a little two track, Real to real recorder, and we would record the things that we were writing. And, um, uh, it was just a really creative time, you know, and uh, and it was a time that I think we kind of got to know each other, you know, through through doing those kind of things. And, and then he produced your solo um, records, right? And he produced, yeah, he produced on solo records. And and the the reason he ended up doing that was. I was so disillusioned at the at the uh, after our group broke up. I mean, um, I just felt kind of misunderstood by the people who had always listened to my music, and um, I was getting a lot of blowback from people that 
you know, that I had somehow walked away from my faith and, and, um, you know, people didn't understand that, that it was actually just the opposite rather than walking away from my faith. What I was trying to do was to follow a path of my, from my faith. And, um, Mark was, was good, um, that dilemma. And he, he could kind of see what I was trying to do. And, uh, he, he was, uh, by this time he was already living out in LA and he came through town cause he still had family here and then occasionally he would come back. Uh, he came through town once and, and, uh, he and his wife, Janet came by the house and I played Mark a bunch of new songs and I said, I just need you to be honest with me and just tell me, am I on to anything here or should I just forget about this? You know what I mean? It's like, it just had, it had gotten to the point where it just seemed too hard. I, I was just butting my head against the wall and Mark listened to, to everything and, uh, was very encouraging to me about it and um, uh, just felt like that maybe I had kicked into a different level of my writing and that it would be wrong for me not to pursue it. And um, so uh, um, I, I, I had gotten enough songs together that I felt like I wanted to make a, an album. And uh, Mark said, well, you know, I'll be glad to help you produce these things. You can come out to L.A. and stay with me. And we'll just we'll make records. So that's kind of how that happened. And um, I uh, word records who um, had, uh, they had put out the, most of the Pat Terry Group albums. Um, they had, they talked to me about you know, doing some new solo stuff for their label, and I signed with them and and um, brought Mark on as the producer on them, and so uh, so we made them made them out there and cut the original tracks for uh, my first solo album, which was Humanity Gangsters. We cut those in a little studio in Camarillo, California, outside LA. And um, then brought the tracks um, uh, back to to Mark's, and and Mark Mark had built a little. Well, you know, I, I, now that I think about it, he may not have had his studio yet at that point. So I guess we did did everything out there in Camarillo. But uh, well, people who didn't have not heard those. I mean, uh, we'll talk about that some more in a second, but. Um, and this is this is I think you we've met and talked about a little bit of this, but I think you understand what I'm saying when I say this here. Um, the maturity of the three solo albums almost was a, reflected a different, a totally different person that had just finished a couple of years earlier the Pat Terry Group albums, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I know those albums continue to show up on faith based records that are still you know in the top fifty, top one hundred, all three of them, and the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, it is amazing that, like you're saying, that people that were looking for a Bible verse on everything uh, were sort of missing the depth and the um, just the inside of those three records. 
Well, I appreciate you saying that. I just, I mean, I was just trying to, I was just trying to be as honest as possible. And, um, and I was trying to communicate outside the Christian subculture. Uh, and I'm not sure, you know, looking back now on those albums and I hear them, but I'm not sure how well I did that. Um, because it's still, I was still writing in such a way that Christian audiences would be able to relate to it probably first and foremost. I, I didn't realize that's kind of what I was doing. I, I really thought I was trying to reach outside that community and, and, uh, and I was, but I, you know, I, I still, because that was, that was my community. That was where I came from. And, and I still felt that even though I, I didn't want to walk the usual path of the Christian music thing, I still felt married in my soul to this group of people that I had loved and, and, um, had shared a, a genuine spiritual fellowship with. So, so the language that I was writing in and everything still kind of connected to, to them. I hope that it would. And, um, but I don't it, think, I think, I, I don't, and maybe it's just me. Well, <laughs> I think part of it was you You and Mark both suffered from distribution beyond where, you know, Mike could get. Although I will tell you a great story. When I was still out in Mill Valley, California, I think it, and uh, it was right after Film at 11 had come out, and um, I was somewhere, and a guy had a little cassette boombox thing on a, a store or something, and he had that record. And I said, you go back there? And he goes, no, nah, I, I saw this at store somewhere. It looked interesting. And wasn't a believer, wasn't a person of faith at all, but he loved that record. Hmm. Well, that's so, cool. Yeah, yeah, so somebody was still finding it and hearing stuff. And, you know, your, yeah. even, even your more recent album, uh, Laugh a Million Years, it reflects that continued sort of maturation of faith that... Uh, you know, that you seem to, you know, that kind of the uh, Talmud approach, as many questions as answers. Right, right, yeah. Well, again, it's like I, you know, um, I, I just always try to write something that I can believe in and that when I go out and play my concerts that I can stand up and stand behind. And um, the only way you can do that is to write as honestly as, as you know and, so, you know, it's, uh, and, that, and that's, after all these years, that's kind of what keeps me going. I mean, that's the joy of it is, is, um, is still in the writing and being able to, to find something to say and say it in such a way that it feels real for me, you know, and that's, you know, that's the whole, the whole point of it. I hope it doesn't sound corny, but it, it's almost also sort of a reflection of that one line and that one one song about the difference between uh, learning the difference between growing up and growing old. Yeah, right. We, right. we also talked about that. Is there any chance yet that those solo records will ever be widely available again? You know, I I don't know. I, I have periods where I think they will be, and then <laughs> I feel like I don't think it's going to happen. But because the... Um, uh, Word Word Records owns those masters. I don't I don't own them, and I don't have the I don't have them in my possession even to to do anything with them. And um, 
it's yet to be demonstrated to me that word can even lay their hands on the masters. I don't know. You know, I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure they know where they are and they should, I mean, they should be in their vaults, you know, but, um, you know, the biggest problem is just that that company has been sold, you know, three or four times since Mm -hmm. those days. And there's no one left at the company that was around when those records were made. And there, most of them are not familiar with me necessarily. And, um, they just—they're not interested. They're way and down. And again, I highly recommend checking out his, his other uh, work so, as well. True Cost you know, is, is on Netflix. I, I, but um, I get people and people um, write me stories on, on a weekly basis, wondering it, it, how can you, I you'll enjoy get these albums. Well, next time on the thing, and I have a few have Shane Hips, uh, author of vinyl copies of it that I still have that I make available for sale on website. Well, people who haven't even been exposed to them, most of the stuff, uh, certainly buy the vinyl from Pat, but if you just want to hear them, they're on YouTube most of them. Yeah, right. Somebody's put a pretty pretty clear size of reading on YouTube. Somebody out there can share those words. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, if the Masters aren't available, there has been some pretty good... uh, digital transfers right. that people have made on their own, right. you know. Well, I hope they do release them. I hope people get another chance. Uh, I, I know you continue, and it's always been songwriting, like we were talking about, it's been um, a major focus in everything you do. Um, do you have a favorite song you've written? Uh, no, nah, I mean, I wouldn't know how to, to pick one. I mean, I have songs that I... I have songs that I particularly enjoy playing when I go out and play live because I feel like I connect with them in in maybe a deeper way than I do other songs. But I wouldn't say they were, you know, know, I don't know what my favorite would be. What are some Um, of the ones you enjoy playing? Yeah. I I love, there's a song um, off my last album, uh, a song called Someplace Green, that I really, I really like. And it's, it's a very... Um, I mean, I know where it came from. It, it has several sources, kind of, for how the song develops. But um, uh, I really love to sing that song. It's, it's a song about homesickness, and um, um, uh, it just rings really true to me. You know, after years of traveling a lot and being away from home, I know how that feels, and, and, um, uh, uh, it's one of my favorite songs, the, the Oak Ridge Boys actually recorded it, and, and their version is really interesting, because they recorded it like a gospel quartet, which is basically what they are, uh, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and my version is more folky, you know, right, and, uh, so, uh, it's always interesting for me to hear some of my songs that I particularly like to hear what other people do with them. So, so I love that song. I, I, I love a song called um, uh, Forgiveness, which was also on my last album. Um, and 
I, I still like even from my old from the old days I like uh, Home Ride Long um, and um, um, uh, Meet Me Here and a few of those oldies that uh, still kind of ring true to me and uh, and then from those solo album years there's a song that I still do a lot when I go out and play live called In My Dream mm-hmm. and uh, it, 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 it's very, it could have been written yesterday you know as far as I'm concerned I mean it, it really seems connected to the way things are right now and um, so um, you know all these things are uh they mean something to me because they meant something to me when I was working on them, you know. At what point did you start writing for other people? Because I know you mentioned Oak Ridge Boys. Oh. You've written for Tracy Bird and John Anderson and Travis Tritt and yeah. Tanya Tucker, just name a few people. Yeah. Well, I, I went through a period in the late 80s and uh, all through the 90s where um, I basically kind of retired from the road and I wasn't going out and playing live very much at all and um uh, wasn't making records i i just i went to nashville and i worked on getting a publishing deal where i would be a staff writer and i would just write songs for other artists and i had had other artists record some of my songs before then but i'd never tried to get them recorded i mean they you know it happened because word music who owned the publishing on most of that early stuff you know they would go out and get songs cut but i wasn't involved in it and i didn't you know i didn't really work very closely with the publishing company and trying to make that happen pat tell the tra- but, travis tritt story how that one happened oh well travis was uh uh had just signed his deal with warner brothers records and he was um, getting ready to make his first album. And he played a lot around our local area, and I had never heard him. And up in Nashville, I'd had a number of people telling me how great this guy was, and people were saying, you know, he lives right down there near you. And um, um, I, I, I had a you know, couple of people that said they could make a connection for me with him and nothing ever came of any of that. And so one Friday night, I saw where he was playing here in town and I called a friend and I said, let's go up and hear this guy. And we went to this little country music club and um, and he was just great. I mean, just a great voice and, you know, good band and the whole thing. So I... Uh, I went afterwards, after he finished his set, I, I kind of worked my way backstage and stuck out my hand and said, you know, Travis, uh, my name's Pat Terry. I just really wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed the show. And when I said my name, he kind of grips my hand and he looks me right in the eyes. He went, Pat Terry, you played at my church one time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I always joke and say that it sounded like an indictment which it, <laughs> it kind of did but uh, but uh, we got to talking and uh, sure enough I had played at his church you know he, he had heard me years before that 
um, in his youth group when he was at church. And, um, and we found out that we had some mutual friends and he had sung one of my songs at a friend's wedding one time and just some different things like that. So we decided we'd get together and just see if we could write a song. So he came over to the house here one afternoon and pulled up in his huge truck in the driveway and, and came in and and uh, in just a couple of hours we wrote a song called Help Me Hold On which ended up being his first number one record and, and um, I, I remember being so impressed um, because when we finished the song we decided we would do a demo here at my house because I had a little little studio that I did demos in here and uh, so I, I put together some tracks and then Travis was going to come back and sing on them so he, after I, after I finished the tracks, he came over and, and when he sang, it, it was, it was the best vocal I'd ever heard sung in my house. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it was just, it sounded so great from the top down, you know, and, uh, I remember, you know, there would be like one little spot or something and I'd say, well, Travis, you know, that one line, so, but he said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll get that again. So take it back to the top. And I said, well, yeah, don't you want to just fix that one little spot? Because I mean, some people may not realize it, but you know, in in multi-track recording, you know, you can go in and just what we call punch in one word or one line and just fix that and keep the rest of the entire performance. And uh, Travis said, "Oh no, no, I don't, I don't like to do that. I want to sing the song from the top, and I'll get that line right when I get there." I thought, oh, well, okay. So for safety's sake, I kept the the original take and opened up a new track, and he sang it again. And sure enough, this time, it was even better, you know. And there was one spot he wanted to fix on that one, and he went back to the top again. And on the third pass, it was even better. And I'm going, how in the world does anybody (laughs) sing this well? You know. So that was fun. I still got that demo, and uh, the the demo, uh, uh, his, his vocal performance on the demo is, from from my money, it's every bit as good as as what he did on the on the record. Well, I know another record, one that, that everybody's heard. You know, is Tanya Tucker's big hit, "A Little Too Late, Do the Right Thing." Now, how did that come? Yeah. How did that happen? Well, um, I was uh, uh, I was. I never actually moved to Nashville. I, I always lived in Atlanta, but I would go up to Nashville for at least a week out of every month. I did that for years and years. And um, I had a trip planned, and um, uh, I was going to be riding with a fellow named Roger Murrow. And Roger is a great, great writer that wrote lots of big hits for. Uh, he wrote, uh, he was one of the writers on Don't Rock the Jukebox by Alan Jackson. And uh, uh, he wrote a lot of Alabama's big records and things and Waylon Jennings. And, you know, he, he'd been around a long time and it was a privilege for me to write with him. And I felt like every time I did, I learned a lot. So I was supposed to bring an idea to him the next morning when I went into Nashville. And, uh, man, I had nothing. I mean, I just couldn't come up with an idea, and I was—I laid awake half the night 
worrying about it because I hated to walk into his office and go, I'm sorry, Roger, I just don't have any ideas. And um, so the next morning on the way to Nashville, uh, about the time uh, I got to Mont Eagle Mountain, which you have to go over when you go from Atlanta to Nashville, you go through Chattanooga and then you go over Mont Eagle Mountain. About the time I got to Mont Eagle, something, something just started clicking in my brain. And I pulled out a pad and I just started writing. And by the time I got to the top of the mountain, I kind of had most of the first verse and part of a chorus. And uh, and I stopped there and thought, I'll take this to Roger and we'll work on this together. And uh, so sure enough, you know, we, we wrote this song. He he liked the idea and, and we wrote this song. Roger really understood the the um the craft of of writing songs for the radio you know and so he made some suggestions about a couple of spots and uh uh and i i i i had originally called the song uh, uh a little too late did i see uh, uh, what was I, I called it oh it's a little too late for that now that's what i was going to call it and he he took one look at that and he said, "Well, no, 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 no." He says, "That that's not the title of this song." <laughs> so this song is just called "It's a Little Too Late." He said, "You don't need that for now business in there." And he was right. I went, "Oh yeah, that that kind of pops, you know." So uh, uh, I I came home and demoed the song in my little home studio and sent it back up to Roger and. You know, most of the time, it, it takes a long time to get a song cut. It's very difficult. It, it, people who may not have ever tried it, it's you know, it's one thing to write a song, but it's another to get it recorded by someone. And there's so much competition in Nashville. Uh, you know, every writer in town is trying to get their song on the same album, and there's only ten songs on an album, so you know, it's real, very competitive. And uh, Roger. Uh, uh, the day he got the demo, he took it and uh, he took it to Tanya and I got a call the next day saying that she was cutting it as we spoke, you know, which is very rare. I mean, that never happened. <laughs> so that was exciting. And she, you know, it, it's still one of my absolute favorite uh, records that, that uh, people made of some of the songs that I wrote during that that period I mean she Tanya just killed it and you know the drummer uh, just made that record I thought it was, it's a good record it's a good record now do you write many songs while you're driving <laughs> uh, well yeah I kind of write all the time so you know it's like you, you take them when you can get them and uh, sometimes you can be driving or you can be doing any number of things, cutting grass or, you know, whatever. Um, and these days, as I've gotten older, I find that it takes longer for me to write songs. And um, I think part of that is just because I've I've written so much through the years that now just to find something that is fresh for me and that keeps my interest, uh, it just takes a while to land on that that idea and once I do then 
it may take you know months or a year or two sometimes to get it all fleshed out because it, it it's kind of a part of your life experience and um if you if you rush it uh and you just throw words down on the page then you might miss the real heart of where the song is so um I just finished a song just a couple of days ago that um, is probably going to be on my new album that I'm working on right now. And, um, you know, I worked on this song probably three or four years. And I worked on it a fair amount during that time. Uh, and I could always tell when when I would get a line that felt right in the song, you know. It felt connected to it, and it felt like it was clicking emotionally everywhere it needed to. Um, but it took a long time to get to that because it was a hard subject to write about. Uh, the, the name of the song is I Don't Want to Die. And, uh, you know, most Christian writers write songs like I'm looking forward to dying. <laughs> and and this is a song called I Don't Want to Die. And uh, it's just kind of about the value of our experience here on earth and the beauty of it. And uh, it took a long, long time for me to get to the bottom of how to say what I wanted to say and and really what that song was going to be about. So, uh, so, and that's, I love that process, you know. I just, I, there's nothing I would rather do than sit, sit in a room and go over, over and over and over lyrics trying to, make them into real songs. Have you had song ideas that you just thought were going to be killer that just never saw the light of day? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I've got, I've got tons. I mean, every, every once in a while, especially like right now when I'm, when I'm putting together a new album and I'm trying to decide what's going to go on it, I always go back to see what I've got. Um, sometimes not, not just songs that I've finished, but songs that I started and never finished. And I go back and I go through all those things and I just kind of see, what, what have I got that I've, you know, maybe maybe I put it down too soon and maybe if I went back to it now, it would make sense to me, you know. And, uh, but most of the time I find that um, that just the little bits and pieces of things, the reason that they're laying there as a bit or a piece is because there wasn't something in them that was clicking for me at the time anyway. So, um, but I, yeah, I've got tons of songs that I've written that they're not bad songs, but they're not, they're not, um, they're not the kind of things that I would put on an album. And then I feel like that, you know, 10 years down the road, I could still stand behind, you know, um, you have to, I mean, I always had a theory, and I think a lot of writers feel this way. You have to write a lot. And sometimes you just write something to get it out of the way so that it makes some room in your brain for the next thing that really is going to be a good, really good one. So you kind of have to clear out the cobwebs, and sometimes the only way to do that is to is to um, go ahead and write whatever it is you're working on and move it to the side and get on to the next one. 
Yeah, my experience is in all writing, even when you're writing fiction and other things, you, you some like you're saying, some things just need to get that chapter written or whatever and push it over so you can work on what you need to be working on. Right, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do, yeah. What about if somebody's listening to this and just, just not knowing we were going to get into this kind of conversation, um, would you have any advice for someone who's listening who might want to be a songwriter or have always thought that might be something they'd want to pursue, what, what, what you think they ought to do? Well, um, um, you have to spend. I think I think people have to spend the time necessary to find out whether they have whatever it is that they need to be a songwriter. I mean, some people um, love music, but they they don't necessarily have a gift for expressing themselves through it, and. Um, um, and songwriting is not is not just about having that talent or that gift either. It also has to do with learning the craft of writing songs, um, and um, that just takes time. So I, w- I would say, you know, uh, be willing to put some real time into it. And these days, there's there's lots of ways to get input from people who are good writers. Um, uh, you know, YouTube, of course, has lots of songwriting things, and some of them are better than others. But you know, any any time that uh, you're reading something where you have the input from a writer that's had some genuine success as a writer and then who has dedicated himself to a career in writing, well, then there's things you'll learn, and and uh, you know just expose yourself to as much of that as possible. And I also encourage people to join the National Songwriters Association. Um, even if you don't live in Nashville, you can join the NSAI. And they have satellite groups all over the country of groups that are there to encourage writers, to provide opportunities for writers to learn, um, and you become a part of a community of writers when you when you join a group like that, and that's that's really important because it's a very difficult, um, uh, you know, if you're serious about it as a career, it's it's a it's, it's not an easy career because it's as I said a little while ago, it's really competitive, and and a lot of people are trying to do exactly what you're trying to do, and. You have to find that way for your songs to jump out and get people's attention in a way that maybe some some others are not. So um, you need someone to encourage you that when you feel like giving up, that there's someone there that says, "Hey, you know, I loved your last song. Don't don't stop now. You're doing great. Keep going." Uh, and that's that's what NSAI is good good at. Is it? Um, it, it, it knits groups of people who write together and you, you make great friends and people who will encourage you along the way. Uh, and on top of that, NSA also sponsors um, writing workshops and things like that throughout the year um, that are they're just invaluable. So, um, so that's a good thing. That's, that's what I'd say. And, and last but not least, and maybe the most important, is just listen to a lot of 
writing. Listen to a lot of great music and listen to stuff that inspires you and that you love and let it become a part of the way that you think. And that happens over time just because you listen, listen, listen. And if you really love it, there's a reason that you love it. And you'll, you'll eventually figure out what it is that's clicking with you uh, the more you listen. So, um, and one more thing before I get away from songwriting. I know you've heard either stuff you've written or people you've written with that was as good as anything you've heard recorded that just never gets recorded. How, how does that make you feel? Um, well, it used to frustrate me a lot. And then I just got to the point where I expected it because I came to realize that, you know, as a as a business, the music business is different than, I mean, they call it music business for a reason. It, it is a business. And there's a lot of reasons why songs get cut. Why some, why some, some songs get cut and some songs don't. Sometimes it has nothing to do with how good a song is. Sometimes, sometimes a song gets cut because the artist was getting ready to go in the studio and he needed one more song. And he, that just happened. Your song just happened to be the one that they heard that day. And uh, there probably was a stack of songs on their desk that if they had taken the time to listen to them, they probably they may very well have found one that was even better than your song. But uh, but the timing was right, and so uh, you know it's just um, uh, it, it, I think it's a it's kind of an amazing thing that. In Nashville, every publisher has a room full of of uh, songs that haven't been recorded and may never get recorded, and they're really, really good songs, really well well written, well done, and um, it just it just comes with the territory. I, I, I like having the outlet of doing my own records i mean for years i didn't make records right and i started making records again a few years ago because um there are songs that i really love and that i think are good songs and that i would like people to hear that are songs that are hard that would be hard to get cut um but i can cut them myself and i hope that they'll sound good because i i understand the song i'm inside of it you know because i wrote it so um, uh, it, it's always good to have an outlet, and um, and I think I think it also helps for writers to um, to not measure their success just by some kind of music business standard. You know, if you if you've written a song that you really love, and you go out and you play it for your church group or you know, at the local moose club on Friday night or something like that. And if, and people like it and people respond to it, well, then you just fulfill, I mean, you may have fulfilled the only reason that song came about. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully not. Maybe maybe it'll go on and, and have a bigger audience. But as a writer, you have to love the writing and and just being able to connect with one or two people, if that's all it is, to make it worthwhile, you know. And that's why you don't give up. That's why you keep doing it, because that's where you find your success. And um, uh, 
So anyway, I hope people who love to write will keep doing it. Well, shifting gears a little bit, Pat, at what point in your life did spiritual things come on your radar? Um, I was a, um, well, I mean, I grew up in church, um, and, uh, my, my grandparents were charter members of First Baptist Church in Smyrna, Georgia, and we just grew up going to church. Uh, I was always aware of those kind of things, but my, my real personal experience with it didn't happen until I was a senior in high school. And, um, that kind of happened as a result of, of, I had some friends who, um, came to my house and sat down and witnessed to me, basically shared the gospel with me. And they invited me to come to a youth rally, um, uh, they had a series of youth meetings that week. They invited me to come to that. And um, uh, I think that kind of was a key that unlocked the door for me. It's like I, it was obvious those people cared about my spiritual well-being. And I had never thought too deeply about it. And suddenly they were sitting in my living room talking about it in ways that I'd never heard anyone talk about. So... Um, that really that made a huge difference, and I I, I did make a, a decision for Christ in one of those meetings that week. And um, uh, everyone's experience is different, uh, and not everyone should have the exact experience that I had. But I will say that in my experience, I um, I really felt like something inside me had changed dramatically, and I couldn't explain it then and I'm not sure I can exactly explain it now but um, I, I, I do remember um, going to bed that night and laying there in the dark and thinking I feel like a different person on the inside um, and of course you know the Bible speaks of being born again and um, I, I believe that's what had happened to me and um uh, from that point on, I just, you know, I had the privilege of connecting with people who encouraged me in my faith. And, um, when did you uh, connect this with your music? When did that kind of connect with your music? Well, it immediately uh, made a big difference in the way I thought about music. And it also gave me a new... Um, motivation for making music because for the first time I think I felt like I had something to say I had you know it was something that only I could say because it was my personal experience so um so it kind of immediately made a connection and I, I started in church coffee houses and that kind of thing and you know whereas I had you know a month earlier, I would have shown up at the coffee house and played Crosby, Stills, and Nash tune. And now I was starting to write a song of my own that I could sing, you know. So um, it's it, it, it was it was you know my my spiritual awakening at that time in my life is the reason I I became a writer. I think. 
You've been around churches and other religious venues for re- literally decades now. What What's different now? And, and I guess what's the same? Hmm. Oh, that's a big question. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of things different um, just in terms of the the way that uh, I guess the certain kind of freedoms that that you have to express yourself. Um, I mean, churches generally these days have a lot of uh, opportunities for people to express themselves in different ways. And for for musical people, you know, like me, there's there's a lot more music being made in a lot more diverse kind of ways than there ever ever was when I started so so I'm glad to see that and that's that's a change that in and of itself is a good thing um, I'm not sure it's always implemented in a way that's that's uh, that's that's always uplifting or good but uh, but for the most part I think it is and so you know that's a good thing and uh, uh, one thing that I don't think it's changed very much is I think sometimes um, uh, I think people still uh, people in church still look for ways to justify um, um, you know creative work um, by how you know how effective it can be used in ministering or preaching or evangelizing and that's the value that they they find in it and that's the value that is constantly pushed at congregations you know let you know let god use you doing this let god use you doing that well you know again in and of itself that's that's not necessarily bad but when you talk about the real value of music it's not I don't believe that it's just in uh, how it can be used to influence someone towards your way of thinking or 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 uh, you know there's there's some inherent beauty in it that I believe is a part of God's creation that uh, God means for us to enjoy and appreciate and that we connect with his creation through, uh, that in and of itself, that's enough reason. You know, you don't, it doesn't have to ever, um, uh, you know, evangelize someone for it to have value. And uh, I think that's, you know, that sounds kind of philosophical and esoteric, but I think it's kind of fundamental. And, And I think it's, the lack of the lack of that value system uh, is what turns out quote unquote Christian music that that doesn't have much substance. Um, so um, that's the only thing that comes comes to mind. Well, yeah, I'm with you. I think that the idea that there's only one one uh, parameter to connect with God has, has 
it, it has different mask, but it didn't look that much different than it did to me back then either. You know? Right. Um, yeah. But yeah. If, how are you different than the man who started the Pat Terry group? Hmm. Well, <laughs> think about that. Well, I, I, I think the thing that has made the biggest difference is that I'm older. Um, the Pat Terry Group, when, when we started Pat Terry Group, I was, you know, 20 years old, 21 years old, something like that. And, uh, you know, if you're over 40, then you know what I mean when I say that when you're 20, you're the way you think about things and the way you look at things is really different than the way you look at things once you pass 40. And I think it's got to do with the life experience that you have and the things that you start figuring out that are important and things that aren't so important. And so at my age now, which is 66, you know, uh, there's a lot of stuff that I thought was you know, of the highest importance uh, during those Pat Terry group years that I, I don't think are necessarily where I put my emphasis these days. Uh, and that doesn't mean that I don't look back on those years and find a lot to value there, but it just says that I've moved, I've moved on and I'm, I am kind of a different person. So does that yeah. begin kind of, to answer your question? Yeah. Uh, who have been some of the great influences in your life? Just people or maybe books, art? We, we talked about music a little bit. Who have been some of the biggest influences in your life? Hmm. Well, certainly, I mean, there's lots of artists, you know. Um, you know, like a lot of people, have the writing of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, um, I really loved and because they spoke about spiritual matters in ways that I had not thought about before. They didn't sound like church. They sounded like a real person talking about spiritual experience. And so that, that, that made a, a big difference. Um, and, uh, you know, musicians, we've kind of already talked about some of that. Um, there have been some individuals that no one knows, wouldn't know but me, but uh, there was a lady down in, in Florida uh, named Mary Jane Parker. We called her Ma Parker, and uh, she passed away a couple of years ago. But uh, she was, she was kind of like a mom figure to me. Um, uh, and that that doesn't minimize my own mother, who was a great lady. But my Parker was one of the most real people that I ever met. And she was very vocal about her faith and very serious about her faith. But she was not afraid to to acknowledge her humanity. You know, I mean, she was, you know, if she got mad... Uh, and, and cursed, uh, she did it on purpose, you know, and she didn't apologize for it. And, uh, 
and that that may seem like a small thing, but when but you know when you're hungry for people who will be real with you and speak truth to you when you need to hear it, then that's the kind of person that you want to know. And she was just such a great encouragement to me and to my life as well. And um, uh, we just loved her to death, and I miss her every day. Um, uh, Mark Hurd is in the same category, and we talked about his encouragement to me, and that kind of goes without saying. But I just miss his... um, 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 he had a very big view of what was valuable in life. And I feel like I learned a lot from him on that. And he made a big difference in my life as a result of, of that. And um, so... Um, and of course, Mark died suddenly. You know, he was not... He's 40, right. 40, right in there somewhere. Yeah, 40. And um, yeah, he died of a heart... Yeah. heart attack complications after a heart attack and um you know that was quite a shock for all of us to sure. and i was at cornerstone when he had the first one and now we were all just stunned young man seemed to be you know yeah yeah well most people didn't know but he, he had a, a history of heart disease in his family yeah. i mean a, a lot of men in his family had died as a result of heart disease and and uh Mark was was wired up to be a a guy that lived with lots of stress and and uh, on top of that and smoked and uh, that was uh, that didn't help you know <laughs> yeah uh, all right um, you got anything on your bucket list as an artist or a person you said you're 66 I mean you're like me you start thinking. All the things I thought I was going to do, I got to figure out which ones I really am going to do now because time is not yeah. my friend. <laughs> right, right. Well, I do. Um, you know, I, I do want to make another album. I, I've I've uh, I've coasted a lot the last few years because I haven't quite known what kind of album that I want to make, and um, uh, just this past year a few things have started coming into focus for me and I I started writing and some things have been coming out that I feel excited about. And so I, I'm looking, uh, uh, I definitely want to finish this album and I don't plan on going anywhere, but you never know. uh, Do you have a working title or anything yet? No, I don't. I, I, I don't have, I've got, I've got, uh, you know, I've probably got, eight or nine songs that I feel pretty strong about and there's two or three more that I'm working on and then I'll make my final choices and it'll, you know, but, but it, you know, it, it will, it, it will not be a political album, but, you know, like anyone who's trying to be creative these days, the political scene in the country informs the way we think about a lot of things right now, I think. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm concerned as a lot of people are about the direction that we've gone in the country. And, you know, there are certain things that I'm writing about that they don't, you know, they're not like political banners, but 
they they have the, some information in them that comes out of that, you know, that struggle. So who would have thought uh, we'd live was, long enough to see something weirder than Nixon? <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, every, every day you wake up and think, "Well, oh, I can't get weirder than this," and then something else happens, and it's like, "Really?" <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I just. I hope that the end result of of all this, by the time we get through another election and everything, is that we will have maybe made a better discovery about who we are and who we want to be, and that we'll we'll go that direction. Well, Pat, I got two more questions. I ask these to every guest on the Thinking God podcast. One of them, some people find kind of heavy, and some people don't. And the other one, everybody thinks has to think about it, but nobody finds it heavy. And the first one is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, I'm not sure I have anything profound to say about that. Um, um, uh, I... I think that Jesus is who he said he was in the scripture and he's he's God's only begotten son and and, uh, he came to make it possible for people to to have a relationship with God and he he did a finished work in his death and resurrection that allowed that so uh, so that's who he is and and for me he is he is that savior and um and he's also my confidant and um someone that's trustworthy and um so that's that's the only way I'd know to answer that question okay and the last one in when's the last time you laughed so hard you could not catch your breath Oh, jeez. I remember doing that fairly recently, but now I don't remember what I was laughing at. <laughs> uh, um, well, this, this is this is probably too... Uh, I started to say too general, but actually there's a specific moment. One of my favorite television shows is is a, a series that was made for the BBC called The Detectorist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, for folks listening to the podcast, if you haven't seen that, uh, a detectorist is someone who uses a metal detector to search for various treasures and so this is this, and and I didn't realize this, but there's like a whole subculture of, <laughs> of people who, who, who are just passionate about about that hobby, and so this show is about some of those people, and and it's one of the best written things I've seen in a long time. I just really love it. Uh, there's a moment on <laughs> that, and I guess this goes back to, to. Uh, uh, some of my music experiences, but uh, one of the guys had written a song about his ex-wife and he was very serious about it. And he decided that he was going to take that song and play it at a local open mic night in a little pub. 
he asked one of his his detectorist friends to accompany him on guitar. They were going to get up and do it. And the entire entire time in this episode, it's kind of a study of 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 the insecurities that this guy has to get up and sing this song in front of everybody. And it's written so well that it's, that in and of itself is kind of funny. But I, when they get up to play, um, they're sitting there getting ready to go up. They've invited all their friends in the village to come, so they're all there to hear them. And, um, and right before they get up and play, the host for the evening gets up and introduces this other guy who's going to come up and play. And he, he's, he's, a, he's a well-known British folk musician. Um, he sings the, the uh, series song, um, the title song for the series anyway. But they feature him in this episode as this guy. And he gets up to sing and he starts to play. And man, he is great. He's <laughs> <It's> just great. <laughs> and you have to see it to know how funny this is. But the look on these two guys' faces when they're sitting there waiting to go on and this guy's up there doing what he's doing was so funny. But my wife and I both just fell out laughing and laughed about that for three or four days. <laughs> I guess because I, I guess because I've been there before. But uh, you know, that I highly recommend that series. It's it's really, really amazing. Well, Pat, I have really enjoyed talking to you, man. This has been fun. Well, thank you. And, Great. Um, Enjoy it. And, uh, tell people uh, to just to, to go to your website, and it has all information. It'll also have the information about your new record when it comes out. That's uh, patterryonline.com, yep. right? That's right. Yep. And yep. Um, I, hope, I hope folks will stay tuned. I, I'm, um, I'm, my album should be released by the fall. Great. And um, so, and then get I'll ready to what, catch you on tour now. somewhere with a new album, right? There you go. That's, that's right. I'm, I'll be I'll be doing a few um, uh, kind of uh, album debut concerts, and maybe maybe I'll be doing one in some of your listeners' hometowns. Fantastic. Well, Pat, I appreciate it. Like I said, I enjoy it, and we'll catch up again when your album comes out. Thanks, Greg. We'll talk to you soon. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Pat Terry, a really, really good guy. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Thinking God podcast where I try to find reasons for hope and faith in a world that sometimes uh, seems a little out of control. Join us next time. The guest will be Shane Hip.
lost his brother too. 